Happy Friday, Murdoch Murders Podcast super fans, and welcome to our second Cup of Justice bonus episode, serving you hot legal takes to get your weekend started on the right foot. A couple things before we start. On Wednesday's episode of the Murdoch Murders Podcast, episode 62, we told you about what went down at Russell Lafitte's shocking bond modification hearing in federal court. Highly suggest y'all go back to that episode before listening to this one so it makes the most sense. But for a quick recap, Russell and his wife Susie asked the court to remove the federal ankle monitor because it was interfering with their lifestyle. The judge didn't reverse her decision, but did take Russell off of house arrest. After reading the transcript from the hearing, Liz Farrell, Eric Blanna, and I got together and had a good time analyzing everything that went down at that hearing. There was so much ground to cover. And shout out to the Weston Hilton Head Island Resort and Spa, one of my favorite spots on Hilton Head, for hooking us up with a gorgeous setting to record this episode in. Y'all are awesome and we really appreciate the hospitality. So there is a lot happening with this case right now because Russell is sort of set to go to trial in November on the six federal charges he's facing, which includes conspiracy to commit wire and bank fraud, two counts of bank fraud, one count of wire fraud, and two counts of misapplication of bank funds. On Wednesday afternoon, a federal grand jury issued a second superseding indictment against Russell that basically corrected some errors in the previous indictments and added more information about the crimes he is accused of committing, which we will cover in a later episode. But today we're going to talk about the shocking decision from Russell's defense team to put him on the stand and how the justice system can be different for a privileged person like Russell Lafitte. So to start off, let's talk about the players, beginning with Assistant U.S. Attorney Emily Limehouse, the lead prosecutor on the case. This will tell you how good a lawyer Emily Limehouse is. She did not know that Russell was going to testify. Right. So it's not like, you know, when I have a trial, the judge will say, okay, who's going to put up what witness tomorrow? And you'll say, well, I'm putting up Jerry. Well, I'll go home and I'll pull out all the exhibits and I'll prepare my cross-examination of Jerry. She was going in for a bond modification hearing, Emily. She didn't even know that that, that, that Mrs. Lafitte was going to be reading a statement. So, Well, she locked out. On the fly, when when (laughs) Bart was giving the direct examination of Russell, she's preparing a cross-examination. And I got to tell you, that girl did really good. Yeah. So Mandy, your opinion of Emily Limehouse after reading that, what do you think? Well, I thought that they, I thought Bart Daniel and team underestimated her. Um, I think that they thought that they could put Russell on the stand and get there. Oh, feel sorry for us. And she, I think they assumed that she would throw softball questions at him. Right. And man, she rapid fired, drilled it home. If the goal was for him to get empathy from the judge or from those that listen to it, I, I think it failed. Well, because as you pointed out, it's like a phrasing of some of the things that she said to him. Like she, it's like intentional phrasing that she said. So the minor, she at any time she was referring to the victims, she made sure to make sh- that that the the courtroom or the record knows that these are not just mi- these are minor children. Like you took from children, just to reiterate. Uh, and then she would, um, you know, what the income tax like. 
she would make these little sort of things and get him to say the thing that is the most, basically the obvious to the rest of us and kind of stunning that he would admit some of that. No, like he said, uh, she said, well, you didn't pay this back. And he said, yes, I did. Yeah. And she said, no, you, you lied about that. And he said, no, I didn't. I'm telling the truth. And then she'd show him and he said, well, I guess I was wrong. Well, really, if you're under oath and you're going to tell the truth, tell the truth. Don't have to be proven wrong. And then when you're proven wrong, you just get to say, I was just a little incorrect. Right. Yeah. So who among us laughed when Russell got that second ankle monitor? We can be honest. We all laughed. I laughed. I thought it was so funny. It seemed a little unbelievable, but I guess the idea that... The only people that were shocked in the courtroom was the Murdoch side, our side, when we got up and we argued. Did you just call them the Murdoch side? Yeah, because that's think what... They're... I think they're the, the... That's what they are. And, you know, they call they're all... themselves victims. They, <laughs> they're victims. Listen, they're all trying to separate themselves from Alex, but they were tied yeah. to the hip with him for 40 years when it was convenient. So now when it's not inconvenient, right. when it's inconvenient, you can't, you can't separate. But the fact of the matter is... It was a joke to think that this man should get a $20,000 bond with no restrictions on federal charges when the sentence is that if he's convicted or over 10 years. These are serious crimes. And like I said, it's not a parking ticket. Right. So now, September 6th, back in the federal court. But you saw what was going to happen. Because where, where, you mean? In the original bond hearing, Bart, or it was Matt Austin, got up and said, we don't disagree with much of what has been said what we're saying is what he did wasn't criminal so that was a forecast of what we heard on september 6 because right. when russ testified he basically admitted to everything and then if you go to the transcript on page 112 bart gave you his conclusion bart daniel said he breached his fiduciary duties he was negligent and possibly grossly negligent but he's not criminal So I just have to say that taking this case to trial is a big gamble for Russell because he faces dozens of years in federal prison. And having Russell take the stand just a couple months before he's set to go to trial, that is a huge gamble, especially all just for a pesky ankle monitor. No, and a judge usually doesn't reverse their decision. That's a big thing for a judge. When a judge makes a ruling, judges don't like to change their order because if they change their order, then they start to look like they're vacillating right. or they weren't really sure or wasn't a good order the first time. And there really wasn't a good... Did you read the motion and the memos in support and against? Right. There wasn't. An, there really wasn't cogent reasons why there should be a change or why Judge Cherry was wrong the first time. Right. Yeah. That was so... I, I read it as like kind of a whining uh, when... <laughs> So, <laughs> like yeah. that's what it seemed like. The, well, to this me. is the this has been one. the whole thing yeah. in this Myrtle case. All these defense lawyers are kicked back on their heels. You can't parlay on your back foot, right. and they're all shocked. Dick, Jim were shocked when Alex's bond yeah, was seven million dollars. Boy, were they ever! First, first, <laughs> first, he didn't get bond right by Judge Newman, and shocked. then Judge Lee, the, who they thought is going to be more uh, amenable to a lower bond. She comes in at seven million bucks, not even a ten percent. Just raised seven million. I have to ask, Mandy, do you like? Is that one of the most particular points of pride? Is when you see the good old boys, like the look on their face when they realize they haven't gotten their way. Right. I will never forget the first bond hearing, or that's, it was technically Alex's second bond hearing in Colombia when Newman denied his bond and Harpootlian 
I was right behind him, and he stood up and just freaked out. He was that like, was all, that was our arguments because yeah. I got up and I told Judge Newman, "There's 300 cameras here in this courtroom, and the whole world's watching. Our justice system is on trial. Our states had have a black eye." And Ronnie said, "Well, I don't think you know. I think the bond should be commensurate with how much he stole." I think it should be eight million bucks, and like you, the whole courtroom, all the lawyers, like nobody's ever asked for eight million dollars <laughs> before. Yeah, it turned into the Muppet Show for a minute there, with right. a lot of a lot of people murmuring. <laughs> yeah, because you remember Dick got up after he said no, Bonnie's like. I immediately wanted you to reconsider this. What do we do? You know, let's get a, you know, uh, the psychiatrist to say that he's, you know, he's, he's clear of drugs. Cause Newman used, was really sharp. He said, I'm not sure he's over this drug dependency that he's got. It's drug addiction. That was one of the major things. And Dick was saying, well, we're going to go get an expert who's going to say he's had the treatment. He's good. He's no longer an addict. So, going back to what Mandy said, so the original motion to reconsider or modify bond read to you like whining because it was basically like, we don't like this, change it. Yeah, and it didn't really say why he deserves his well, because bond to be changed. It was just, because I want to go to my kid's football I'm not game. a normal criminal. So, but the, but the, going into the, it. But the feds were completely caught off guard because well don't say it yet so there's there's the so there's we go into this hearing right none of us are there but there is high drama going into it because of the motions because of the memos it got it got a little ugly right we can say that between the federal government and so we all assumed russell would be getting this like sweet plea deal and then that would be the end of talking about federal court Bart's definitely been operating under a high state of agitation and he's not a lawyer that does that. He's not a high drama lawyer. He's not a lawyer that shows emotion. He's a lawyer that's very measured. Right. But you could tell even after our original bond hearing, right. when we were outside on, on Broad Street. Yeah. And we were talking to one of the reporters and he walked by with his mirror shades on and he cut me a glance like you knew he's upset. And and he's been saying all along, this has been fueled by the plaintiff lawyers, plaintiff right. lawyers. Like somehow we, we, we caused his client to, to steal money or loan money or do whatever he's charged with. Yeah, you're just messing up his game. So let's talk a little bit about the players, right? So Bart Daniel is another one of the titans in oh, South he Carolina. Is. He is. He was a U.S. You want to give like a little bit of his yeah, history and like what you know about him? Yeah, he was an assistant U.S. attorney. He's a, a, a hardcore Republican. You know, he's obviously Lindsey Graham's attorney in the grand jury right. investigation that's going on in Atlanta over the election stuff. So he's a, a serious contender. He was considered for the impeachment. He was going to be one of Trump's attorneys for the impeachment. Bart was. He was a, under okay. consideration. It seems like a lot of South Carolina attorneys. We have Debbie Barbier. We're involved with that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Butch Bowers. Butch Bowers. Right. All involved with the Murdoch case also. So yeah. um, in the 80s, he was an assistant uh, U.S. attorney. Mm-hmm. And when we had the um, the scandal with the legislature. That was the drug Operation Lost Trust. Lost yeah. Trust. Sorry. But wasn't he in Jackpot? Wasn't yeah. he? He was that too. Yeah. yeah, he was that. And he did, he cut his bone, cut his teeth on that. And then he, he further solidified his reputation where he took down all these legislators who jeopardized their career and their reputations for $100 bribes, $200 bribes. Times are tough, Eric. So with Bart, why would you hire Bart? Now, who hires Bart these days? 
Um, he doesn't really do the, the blue-collar murder crime like Jack Swirling does or Dick does. He, Did you it, say blue-collar murder crime? What's yeah. that? Yeah, it's the, it's the people that would do drug crimes or you go okay. in and you rob, some, you rob a store. Yeah, he, the, he's the white-collar criminal, the, okay. the, the, the company that commits tax fraud or you know the person who's insider trading and gets okay. charged. You know the the kind of crimes where you don't get your hands dirty, where you come home at night and your your suitcases are full of cash. That's the kind of people he represents. Okay, so he's it, it's basically federal case. Rich though, people, right? it sounds yeah. like yeah. very yeah. rich. He's got <laughs> he's got people who have rich man problems. Right. So these are guys that when they get their target letter from the FBI or the Department of Justice or however it works, they're probably going to call a Bart Daniel. Uh-huh. And why? Why are they going to do that? You tell me. Because he used to be a U.S. attorney. Got and why? It. Yeah. What? We, so to, let's just get to the point of what Eric's I trying mean, that, to say. That, here, that whole thing of switching sides influence. is really interesting to me, and and I find it interesting because when I sue lawyers, it's like the lawyer, the client, and the lawyer they merge, and the lawyer who was representing my client, who I'm suing now for legal malpractice, he loved my client's case when he wanted to bring it. Until he screwed it up. Now he's on the other side of the courtroom, and all of a sudden, oh, that case was worthless. Right. And I say, well, worthless? You were willing to take it on a contingency. You were willing to give all your time. Now all of a sudden, it's worthless. I find the same thing with prosecutors. I mean, they, they're they zealous, and they're doing the job of the law, and they're putting bad guys away. They're putting right. bad guys away. And then all of a sudden, they announce their retirement. And they walk to the other side of the street. Now they're representing the bad right, guy, right? Because now they need to get that money. It's probably and, hard and to kind watch of fits into the stereotype that lawyers don't really have loyalties. You know that they, if you pay me, I'll say. You pay, I'll say. Right. That's really what it looks like. I mean, I'm well, going sure. to be honest. So as far as conviction, you know, we, I guess we're not even looking for that here. But so Bart Daniel is who Russell Lafitte hired to, and I think it's a good hire. fairly early on in, in all of this. So going into, so now we know who Matt, Bart is and we know who Matt. So Matt is at the table too with Russell and Bart. Right. So now we're on September 6th, Tuesday, September 6th, dramatic day. And again, I think it bears repeating that when the feds come for you um, and they, and they uh, indict you, they come, it's. As come good heavy. as um, you did it, basically, right? Like they they have the goods. Yeah, is what Junior Junior Soprano said to Tony: "The next time you come, come heavy. They come heavy." Okay, so when we're at this point, there's some conclusions you can sort of draw, which is that they think they have the goods. Yeah, if you look at the conviction rate on a federal court, it's almost like ninety nine percent. And the, what they do is they put you in a situation that you almost have to plead. Because in state court, uh, Alex is an unusual case where they bring so many charges. In state court, there's usually one or two charges. Federal court, they bring like 22 charges. And if you get convicted on one of those counts, it's like eight years. And we will be right back. So now also talk about Susie. So having Susie Lafitte speak after Russell is on the stand for two and a half hours, now you have her doing a 15-page you know, speech to the courtroom, to the ladies and gentlemen of the courtroom. What Judge Gurgle, Judge Gurgle's going to have read that transcript, right? Gurgle. And Judge Gurgle's who's probably going to preside over this, or do we know he is presiding over he this? He is presiding, okay. and and Judge Gurgle is a tremendous judge. He's a fair judge, but yeah, he's great hum- reputation. But he's human. Sure. Judges are human. 
and things soak into you. And Richard Gurgle is not a judge that likes people who are privileged and try to separate themselves from the rank and file. Now, why would he read that transcript? Like, what what is a judge? Is that how they prepare for the case, or they just have they're going to look at the record? It's part of the record, okay? And they're going to read everything, and and he's going to want to learn if he's presiding over the 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 trial. He's going to want to learn, and he's going to have law clerks that are going to consume that entire file. Okay. And um, judges are human. What Richard Gurgle doesn't like is two systems of justice. And what I'm starting to feel like in this Lafitte case is that Big Russ needs to be treated differently than everybody else. And his wife got up and almost was talking down to all of us. Can't you see the greatness in my husband? Is this how you should treat greatness? Right. Yes. Is this how you should treat greatness? That's exactly it. He doesn't deserve that. Yeah. yeah. And but I think in reading the transcript, you know, obviously different things strike different people differently. Uh, for Mandy and me, though, a lot of our conversations in the past few days have been centered around that ecosystem in Hampton County and sort of like you're in high school or not, like your world, when you're in high school, your world is so small and contained to high school, right? So problems that now that you're an adult that you had in high school are very small. And, you know, but when you're in high school, you think, oh my God, that's just the biggest thing ever. So right. I think there's sort of an insularity here where uh, Susie and Russell have their world. It's tiny. It's not the real world, huh? It's no. world. Yeah, it? it's very, it's, she used she used the word disturbing when yeah. describing missing football games, missing yeah. his yeah. son's football games. Missing. That was my biggest takeaway. The she did not realize like the seriousness and the, and the totality of the crimes that her her husband is accused of being involved in. Talk about the tone a little, like when you're reading it, what you thought about how she sounded, and maybe like, like how how did she start it? She started it with something like, ladies and gentlemen of the courtroom, which I thought was very strange. And I just, the whole thing was to get sympathy, but it came across as arrogant, extremely arrogant and out of touch. Um, No question. Because, because this entire thing is what we're dealing with is people who were very vulnerable in way worse positions than the Lafitte's are in right now. People who are so vulnerable that, you know, people that lost a mother, people that lost a brother, they're in a fog, you know. How am I going to get on with my life? Can you imagine the the, the Plyler girls? It's not that they were, these are financial crimes. The financial crimes happened as a result of tragedy. Yeah, it was like high trauma. High trauma. Yeah. I was surprised that um, his wife, Susie, spoke. Mm-hmm. That was one of the details that stuck out to me. I think it went on for three hours. Yeah. Um, which that was surprising. It was like, I was uh, like, what is happening here? What is going Because, again, these are usually in and out mm-hmm. very quick. And then uh, to find out that Russ testified <laughs> yeah, for as long as he did, not right. just... No, for him to even open his mouth is yeah. stunning. Yeah, and we'll talk. We'll talk about that in a second. So, and then the the big thing for uh, like a couple of two or two major things for me it was the double wide trailer that his wife yes. said, and then there was the tax 
he had not filed, he had not reported some of the fees that he had received for these conservatorship slash personal. Oh, yes, he did. He reported them. No, 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 no. He did. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. You sound like him now. He had not reported them. He had not. Prior to a certain point in time in 2021. By the way, these taxable years were 2012, 13, and 14. Right, right. He just happened to forget income that was three times more than what your W-2 income was. Right, right. So we went, so we knew from the stories that obviously this was a lot more than we had bargained. And the end result was that he just had his house arrest lifted. So he's allowed to travel now in Allendale and Hampton County. That was not what the defense wanted, obviously. But uh, now, Eric, you ordered the transcript um, as you would often do. Uh, I guess in a situation like this, because, because it pertains to your case. Yeah, because it pertains to my case. I probably wouldn't have, uh, Liz, until I heard that he was testifying. Because when a defendant opens his mouth, it's called an admission by a party opponent. So if I'm being charged of a crime or I'm a defendant in a case, the only person I can talk to in a privileged capacity is my lawyer, my priest, And in certain situations, my wife, not my children, certainly not my friends, certainly not the media. And so when a defendant opens his mouth under oath, that is testimony that can be used against him to impeach him. And we'll be right back. So we've got the scene set, we got the tone, we got all of that. Now, talk about what people were saying about Bart. <laughs> are you allowed to talk about what people are saying about Bart Daniel for putting well, him up on the l- stand? L- let me not put it in a term. It. You can talk about Bart. I'll just put it in. If a lawyer puts his client on the stand and in direct examination has his client testify as to all of the criminal charges in mm-hmm. And why did you do what you did mm-hmm. is unheard of. It's it's never done because you don't have to prove anything as a defendant. Right. It's the government's burden of proof. And they just gave a roadmap to the prosecution on what their defense is. Right. Which is what now? Now their defense is, um, I'm a victim. I... Yeah. Uh, Bart Daniel said he breached his fiduciary duties. He was grossly ne- negligent and possibly grossly negligent, but not criminal. So how many times have you seen this happen before where uh, the defense puts their okay, guy put- on the stand during a bond reconsideration hearing? I, I'm telling you it's less, less than probably there's been a statistic. The ABA did it one time that said 4%. I think it's even less. Probably 2% of the time that a defendant will actually get on the stand and testify in their own defense. They do it if it's a self-defense type of case or stand your ground, something where you admit, I did shoot somebody or I did do it, but here's why. Which I guess they kind of are. They're saying he did do these things. He just doesn't think they're crimes in Russell Lafitte world. (laughs) No, but what he did, though, is Bart Daniel walked him directly into civil judgments with what he did, with what he said and what he had him testify to. Remember, this is a bond hearing, Liz and Mandy. This wasn't a trial. Yes. And so all he was trying to do was show I'm not a danger to the community and a flight risk. Now, if his trial was five years from now, 
maybe you can justify the loosening of the restraints and put him up. But you didn't have to put him up to show that he wasn't a flight risk or a danger to the community. His wife could have done it. His children could have done it. But to put him up, you waive your privilege against self-incrimination. You waive the attorney-client privilege because he said that Alex was his attorney, and now he gets into his discussions with Alex. So when you decide you're going to put your client up in a, in a criminal case, it's a risk-benefit analysis. Right. Is the juice worth the squeeze? His trial was in November 8th. Right. So to, to take this kind of risk and waive all these privileges and give a roadmap to the prosecution, to the federal government, of what your case, your defense is, for six weeks of being able to travel in Allendale and Hampton, somebody made a bad decision. So, yeah, in summary, so like when, when we're talking about like the, the reason we're there, we're literally there so that he can have one of his ankle monitors taken off so, so that he can go to football games for the six-week duration between now or maybe the two-month duration, we can say, from between September 6th and November 8th. He needs to sell concessions, you know, don't forget too. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. He t- he t- uh, football was brought up like 17 times in the Yeah, that like, <laughs> really the seemed to be like the drama. Of... Small town, I mean. It's yeah, a, exactly, which reminds me of high time, high Friday night, lights. Absolutely. Yeah, and again, I just don't think that his attorneys are understanding what normal people go through. And the entire time I was reading all of Russell's struggles with his ankle monitors, I was just thinking in my head, well, that's a lot better than jail. That's, I, I get it that he's under house arrest. That's an inconvenience. That's not sitting in jail. It's yeah. not the same thing. Well, he, he was under house arrest. There's people who are sitting in jail. He gets to go out and cook on his grill and eat flaming young if somebody's going to go to the store and pick up the steak for him. Right. And it's not the same, Liz. Alleged double-wide, yeah. Right. So now we're talking about um, going to trial. So the trial right now is set for November 8th. I personally don't think we're going to see a trial. I think I agree. all of this is a lead up to it seems like a kind of a game of chicken and that the defense is daring the prosecution to bring their case to trial and the prosecution is taking them up on their bluff or maybe you know i'm not sure who's bluffing maybe no one maybe both well you know i there was an attorney in the upstate that was um i gave an interview and he was the counterpoint to me and he said well you know the defense wants to go to trial as quick as possible because they don't want the prosecution to be adequately prepared and then he said well, the prosecution wants to go as fast as they can to trial because they don't want defense to be prepared. Well, at that point, if everybody's going to trial so fast, then no one's going to be prepared. Right. That's not justice. No. You know, yes, we want speedy trial. There is the speedy trial rule, and people shouldn't languish with charges over their head because we're innocent to prove, but to be proven guilty. But when you rush justice, you don't get full cup. Right. We cannot rush justice. It's something that has to happen organically because different things happen along the way. Different things are going to be revealed. What if somebody starts to cooperate? What if you try Russ too quickly and Alex decides he would have cooperated or Corey Fleming would have decided I'm going to cooperate? So all these cases are intertwined. And if we're rushing them, we're losing the opportunity where people can cooperate and it would change the dynamic of the case. And uh, what they don't understand is Russell Lafitte having two ankles, ankle monitors that tangle him up at night or whatever she said. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's 
I'm sorry, it's funny because it's funny. <laughs> it's tough to take she, a bath. It well, is, you, she, you, I mean, you, he you was. You plug like, them in, you're wet. You know, yeah. God forbid, you're getting shocked. Well, you know, I googled that, and you actually can take a shower with them on. Because I was like, I want to know what it's like for Not Russell plug to in, be. Though, Certainly can't plug him in. <laughs> um, but Russell's a giant man. He's a six six or six seven, yeah, something like drink. that. So you know, the idea that he has to charge himself a couple hours a day, according to his testimony, um, you know, there's a certain amount of pleasure, I guess, that the world can take in that. Um, but yeah, going back to the tone, these are people who maybe aren't used to consequence or account, you know, being uh, having to have any sort of inconvenience. I don't. What think- about the guy that's sitting in jail that can't make his bond? I'm not talking about Alex, but the normal people that <laughs> that aren't getting their cases to trial right. in, in November eighth. They get their. This guy was charged in May or or July federally. And now he's getting a trial in November. Right. Alex is charged with murder in June. He's getting his trial potentially in January. What about these people who are sitting in jail who've committed... They can't afford justice, Eric. They can't afford it. They need a coupon, some sort of voucher. No, that's not justice that they can't afford. They can't afford well, this, to be... These guys are paying for this justice right, right now. Yeah, and that's, a, that's not kind of the, the definition of what justice should yeah, be. Deuteronomy yeah. said... Sirdik, Sirdik, Sadik, which is a Hebrew for justice, justice shall thou pursue. These we're not; these prosecutors aren't pursuing justice for all these other people sitting in jail. They're pursuing it against the people that they want to pursue it against. The Murdoch Murders Podcast is created by me, Mandy Matney, and my fiancé, David Moses. Our executive editor is Liz Farrell. Produced by Luna Shark Productions.